So uh, let's go ahead and get uh, started. Father, thanks for a gorgeous day out and for being here with us. I pray that you would teach us now in this hour together, help us to understand this important topic of how you've not only preserved the text, but transmitted it down to us. And we thank you that we have your word that we can study and understand. And thank you for this day in Christ's name. Amen. Um, we're going to start something that I find very fascinating, and I hope you do too. And that's uh, the topic of textual criticism. And also, next week, we're going to start looking at translations and versions and things like that. How do you know that you have a good version of the Bible in front of you? Um, far from, I think far from being something that will cause you alarm, I think this will give you great confidence that uh, we have the Word of God in front of us. Um, when we talk about textual criticism, this is, textual criticism is also called lower criticism. What's higher criticism? We talked about that last week. What is higher criticism? No. What, what's the topics from higher criticism? Authorship, time, unity. You know, the, 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 the bigger picture items. Like, is this really written by Paul? Um, is this book one, uh, um, the product of one author or many authors? It all has to do with those kinds of issues about the background of the book. Lower criticism or textual criticism has to do with the text of the book. Do we have the right text in front of us? When, when the translators of our Bible translated it from the Greek manuscripts, do we have the right ones? Are they correct? Is the words correct? That's what lower criticism is all about. And the, when we talk about lower criticism, your job as a lower critic or your job as a textual critic is to determine the original text. Now, as we work through this, you'll find that we can do that. All right? This is not something that, that's sort of a, you know, a roll of the dice or anything like that. We can determine this. This is not hard to do. It takes a little bit of work, but it can be done. Remember when we talked about uh, scriptures, the original texts were inerrant. What do we mean by inerrant? No errors of any kind. No spelling errors, no theological errors, no errors at all. In fact, the letters that came from the pen of Paul and of Moses and of Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all of them, these texts are inerrant, without error, of any kind. All right? Copies, however, are not. Why? Yeah, because of the transmission. All right. Now, when we talk about these kind of errors, are we talking about gross errors? No, we're talking about little little slips of the pen, little spelling errors, um, things like that. We have uh, our handouts coming. So this is last week's handouts, I think. We have this week's coming. So. Now, God inspired, this is important, God inspired the original text, but not the copies. I think you want to flip the light. Yeah, the back ones instead of the front ones. Yeah. Um, God inspired the original text, not the copies. Turn the other one off. There we go, all right, here. Um, why is this important? Because there are some people out there that say, well, and, and these are usually the KJV only people that you'll run into now and then. 
that say basically, look, you know, God re-inspired the translators of the King James so that what you have in the King James is a re-inspired text. All right? Not only were the originals inspired, but the King James authors actually were re-inspired by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if you use any version of the Bible other than the King James, you're using a flawed copy. All right? In fact, some of them even go so far as to say that you cannot be saved unless you use the King James Bible. Um, it's, it's really sort of weird. So, um, it, with them correcting the Greek textual uh, yeah. uh, mistakes, then it qualifies as not being uh, read or inspired, right? Okay, what they're saying, what the KJV people do, and what this guy here, he's a biggie on that, Peter Ruckman. You go out and do a website search on him, you'll hit thousands of pages. Um, the guy basically says that, look, you know, over time, he'll admit the originals, the original Greek manuscripts were inerrant. But over time, little spelling errors and things creep in. And he says what happened when they, when they translated the King James is that the Holy Spirit re-inspired the King James authors so that they corrected any errors that might have gotten into the text. Is that, is that, do you believe that to be true? No. I think he's full of beans, but that's me. All right. Yeah, the Holy Spirit recorrected those little errors. And look, folks, again, we're talking about minor things here. We're not talking about major Bible doctrine or anything like that. We're talking about little minor, minor spelling errors here and there. And we can we can pick those out. We can find those. All right. It doesn't matter because the Holy Spirit re-inspired it in their mind. In their mind, the Holy Spirit re-inspired the authors. So that what you have coming out of the King James Bible is a re-inspired text in English. Do you follow what they're saying? Yes. All right. They re- that's what they're saying. I don't believe that's true, but that's what they're saying. But uh, what, what it is saying then, Bibles we have are not inspired. What they're saying is that if you use any Bible other than the King James, you're using an uninspired text, which is demonic, devilish, and on and on and on it goes. Yeah, if you're using the NASB or you're using the NIV or something, you're using a demonic Bible. Yeah, anything but King, King James using a demonic Bible. And you're in danger of hellfire. That, that's, I'm just saying what they're saying. Yeah. All right? Now, let's look at Old, textual, Old Testament textual chrism. we got handouts coming. People are looking for handouts. we got them coming. Um, when you look at Old Testament textual criticism, what do you, what do you do in a, as a textual critic? Well, you have several manuscripts in front of you, and you can compare them, and you determine what the original is. Like, for example, if I were to put up a long paragraph on this board and have you all copy it, you're supposed to copy it within five minutes. And then we collect all of those papers. What are we going to find? Error. Somebody misspelled a word. Somebody forgot a word. Somebody did a duplication of a word. But... What can we do if we take all of those manuscripts, all those copies, and look at them carefully? We can come back with what the original was. Oh, Ruth put down two thes. Okay, we can take one of those out. Steve misspelled receive. He does it all the time. We can take that out. We can do that. You know, we can, we can correct. And that's what we're talking about here, really. Um, but when you look at the Old Testament, there's not much textual criticism to be done because we don't have a lot of manuscripts of the Old Testament to really compare. Um, most of them date from the 9th century onward, other than the Dead Sea Scrolls. And when we do look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, what do we find? We find that we're pretty close. 
We're, we're so close it hurts. I mean, there, there's literally no variation. Over an 1100 year period, there is no variation in the text. More than that. It, it's way up there. All right. And what, what variations are there are grammatical changes that, because language changes over time, right? So your grammar changes. So we can pick those out. And there's a couple of um, proper names, like countries, peoples, names are spelled differently. All right. Or words are spelled differently, but it's the same word. You, you understand that our English words today are spelled differently than they were back in the early 1800s. You go back and read some of the early 1800s stuff, and a lot of them spelled phonetically. You know, before Webster came along with his dictionary, names were spelled and things were spelled phonetically. So when you look at my family history, for example, for Schaefer, there's like ten different ways to spell that name, depending on what time period you're from. It's the same name, but it's spelled differently. That's the same thing that we have here. Yeah, All right? Hmm? Oh, no, not... Well, that's probably one branch of my family, you know, the Schaefer beer. <laughs> it's the beer to have when you're only ha having more than one, is that, is that the way it goes? Um, so very few, very few changes or very few variations exist. So when it comes to the Old Testament, you know, we have a, an extremely accurate copy of the original text. And part of this, is due, remember when we talked about the copying process? How they copied the text, how they counted the letters and counted the middle words and counted all of those things? Well, I mean, that really gives you an, a, a high degree of probability that you have an accurate text. Also, when you look at parallel Old Testament passages, they're identical for the most part. Um, Isaiah 39 and um, 2 Kings 19, I think, or 1 Kings 19, are virtually identical texts. Um, when you look at archaeology, we dig up stones, and guess what? The names and, and place names are the same as what we have in our Bible. There's significant agreement with the Samaritan Pentateuch. Why is that important? Well, the Samaritan Pentateuch goes back to 200 A.D. All right? And what happened in Samaria, if you remember the Samaritans were the half-breed cousins of Israel, they had their own temple and Mount Gerizim and they have their own Pentateuch they have their own and what's the Pentateuch the first five books so they have the same they, they have an Old Testament Pentateuch that predates the Masoretic text by about 700 years and when you look at their their text and the Masoretic text they're identical except they swap out Mount Gerizim for Mount Moriah and a couple of other things they do where they've altered the text intentionally but other than that it's virtually identical so we have an identicality there. Um, these Cairo Geniza manuscripts, Dead Sea Scrolls, all these are texts that go way back behind the Masoretic text, and we find virtual identical texts. Very few changes, very few at all. So when you look at the Old Testament, you have a very solid text. In fact, our Old Testament text is within a few fractions of a percentage Identical to the original authors of the text. Well, when you, with translation is a different. We're going to get to that. That's an important topic. When we get to translations, we do have some issue, you know, some different issues that pop up. But when you look at the original Hebrew text, 
what we have is virtually identical to what the original Old Testament authors wrote. And what changes do exist are trivial, non, nothing to even worry about. All right? um, when you look at the Old Testament, we have three basic textual traditions. What do we mean by textual tradition? Textual lines. We have the Greek text. When was that done? When was the Septuagint made? No. About 200 B.C. Somewhere around in there. We have the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Alright? We have the Masoretic text and we have the Samaritan Pentateuch. Those are three, three of them. Now, this is important. The Masoretic text is from 900 A.D. Samaritan Pentateuch goes back about 200-300 A.D. The Greek text goes back to 200 B.C. And when you look at all of these, when you compare them, when you're a linguist and you compare these, when you look at the, the Septuagint, for example, you say, okay, what would, the, what would the Hebrew text have looked like that they translated from? Guess what you find? It's virtually identical with the Masoretic text. All right? So when you look at all three of these things, all right, there, 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 is, there is virtually no changes in the Hebrew text. All right. The Septuagint's about 200 B.C. The Masoretic text is from A.D. 900. And the Samaritan Pentateuch is from about the 200s of A.D. 200 B.C. 200 B.C. Before Christ. All right. So you got virtual identicality here. All right. And when you look at all, and, and again, you know, if you're a, if you're a linguist, and you have the Greek text of the Hebrew Bible in front of you, the Septuagint, you can guess pretty closely what that was translated from. The same thing with English. If I have an English translation of a French work, if you're a, you know, if you're a linguist, you can pretty much reconstruct what the French looked like that I translated from. You know, now are you going to maybe get a, get a letter off here, a word here and there? Yeah, maybe, but by and large, you can pretty much tell what the French text would have been. All right? Same thing here. So when you look at the Old Testament textual criticism, folks, we've got a virtual identical text to what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Hezekiah, yeah, Hezekiah, Hezekiah 1-1, um, Habakkuk and all of them gave us. So we don't have to worry about Old Testament errors. All right? New Testament textual criticism is a lot different. Why is that? Well, we have a lot more copies. 5,500 different manuscripts and things. And when you add in all the fragments, we're up to 25,000. All right? So when you look at that, the New Testament variants number about 200,000. When you look at all of the manuscripts, all of them, we pile them all on tables, we have about 200,000 differences. And now immediately you start saying, whoa, that's a lot. Well, I understand what we mean by that. If a word is misspelled in 3,000 of the manuscripts, that's 3,000 differences. That counts as 3,000. Now, if you spell receive wrong in 3,000 manuscripts, can you determine what the original word was? Yeah, yeah so that's, that's nothing to worry about, right? So, when you first look at this number, it's like, oh man, we don't have anything. Well, I mean, we're, we don't have anything close. When you start looking at, well, what do you mean by a difference? You find that these numbers really boil down very quickly, all right, to just a few that we even have to worry about. That's what I'm trying to get at here. It starts out big and it looks big, but it's not big. All right. A lot of these are what we call orthographic 
variations. What do we mean by orthographic? It's a mechanical variation. A misspelled word, a transposed letter. Those are common. Alright? It's common in, in, in writing. If you're, if you're writing notes for classes quickly, you're going to misspell words, you're going to transpose letters, things like that. We can determine what those are very easily. Well, yeah. But it's phonetic, I mean, so we can get close, you know, what it really was, you know. So when you look at all of the orthographic differences, all of the spelling, all the letter transpositions, when you boil that all down, you wind up with very few differences among all of these manuscripts. There's not a lot of differences. Alright? In fact, there's about 166 we need to worry about. We'll talk about that in a minute. So what kind of alterations get into the text? What kind of things happen when you're copying? Now remember, what's the difference about the New Testament copying process than the old? What was the difference? Remember we talked about this a little bit. If you go back and dig out the cobwebs. There were different media, but what was, the, what was it like in the New Testament times as opposed to the Old Testament times? In the Old Testament. Right. But what was going on when the New Testament was being copied? And they were being persecuted and they were illegal. So they didn't have scribes sitting at desks counting letters. You know, you, you tried in the town and somebody said, hey, we've got a copy of Ephesians over here. And you quickly go over and you, you write down as fast as you could that copy so you could have something like that. Yeah, and that's it. And, and, and you had to do it in, you know, under cover of darkness or whatever and, and quickly and try to get it back so that... So, so when you're doing it in that kind of environment, what's going to happen? Little mistakes are going to crop in. Because you're in a hurry, you're under persecution. So that's, that's why we have more variations in the New Testament text than we do the Old. Alright, because of the pressures and the, the environment in which it was being copied. Alright? Now when you look at these things, you have unintentional alterations. These are things that are just completely unintentional. There's nobody saying, I'm going to change the letter or anything like that. It's just when you're writing stuff very quickly, they're unintentional alterations. Try to read a doctor's handwriting. Think about it that way. All right? You've got little letter differences. You've got a sigma versus an omicron. All right? Um, I got. They are very close. Let me get my markers here. I'll show you how close they are. I got to get into my purse here and see if I got my markers. All right, where'd my markers go? Here they are. See, I got to be prepared for everything. So that's why it's like a woman's purse, but I got to have three of them other than a woman has one. I got to have three. Um, when you look at this, here's an Omicron. An Omicron is an O, all right? And a Sigma has a little thing on it, all right? So if it's dark out or, or maybe there's a little bit of dirt on the manuscript or something like that, what can you mistake? One letter for another. It looks almost alike, all right, but it's it's not quite. But now we can pick these out because we know how letters, how words are spelled. All right, you got a lambda versus a delta. This is a capital letter. Here's lambda, okay, and here's delta. 
right? That's capital L and a capital D. Rush versus Daleth. This, this is a Hebrew one. Your, your Rush is like this and your Daleth is like this. All right? Look almost alike. I think I got that the right way if I remember it. So, and then there's another one here. For example, this is a biggie that the KJV only people throw out, you know, to try and really get your, your gander up. In 1 Timothy 3.16, look at that, um, look at that verse. In fact, let's just look at that real quickly so you get an idea. 1 Timothy 3.16, alright? I'll give you an example of how this works out. We're going to do some examples of this later. But I want you to understand what's going on. So, so that, and I'm just trying to get you informed as to the issues here. First Timothy 3.16 says this. Let's see, what is it? First Timothy, maybe I'd be, it'd be good if I was in Timothy and not Thessalonians. What do you think? So that doesn't look like First Timothy 3.16. Alright, it says this here. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in the glory. How many people have God was manifested in the flesh? Which version? You have the New King James. I have the English Standard Version. The NIV has He. Now, immediately what happens is the KJV only people begin frothing at the mouth and coughing and hacking and turning blue and green and orange and purple because that's a denial of the deity of Christ if you put He in there instead of God. That's what they say. I'm just saying what they say. All right? However, if you look at the Greek word, okay, you have those two differences there. There's us... Okay? And that word means he. Or you have theos, which is God. If you got a smudge on the paper, what would happen? Now, do we know what he's talking about? We're talking about Jesus Christ being God. There's, there's no denial of the Trinity here. But now they'll say that that's what's happened. That's why the King James, the New King James and the NIV and the English Standard Version are all demonic versions because you're supposed to have, not the New King James, but the, the, the NIV and the ESV and the RSV, they're all demonic because they use He instead of God. Whereas you shouldn't use God because you're denying the deity of Christ if you don't use God and you're in danger of hellfire and on and on and on it goes. All right? Folks, this is one of the examples. And, and what happens here is you can see how, you know, if, if the light is dim, you might miss that little thing in the middle of the water and write down he. But when we look at the text, we're not denying anything about Jesus Christ, right? There's no denial of deity here. There's no, you know, what was the original? Well, most people think that probably the best understanding is he. That's the best. All right. But both of them, there's no theological difference between whichever one you use. Alright? So what you have here is the, the unintentional alterations. And when you start erasing all of these unintentional alterations, that 200,000 starts getting whittled down real quick. Real quick. And we, we all are familiar with that. There's misspelling of homonyms. What's a homonym? Two words that sound alike. Okay? For example, 
in uh, Matthew 19.24, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. How many have heard that verse? Alright. Well, look at, look at the words here. This is the Greek words. Okay. And the first one there is camelos versus kaunlos. Alright. One is a rope. One is a camel. Alright. They're almost the same. And if you look really closely there, I mean, it's, it's almost like, you know, except for that, it's, it's the same word. They sound almost alike. Now, which one do you think is probably what Christ said? It's probably rope. Rope makes more sense, right? But either one, what's he saying? It does. But probably he, he probably he used rope. Either either way, what is it? What is he saying? It's hard to get through. Whether it's a rope or a camel, I mean, it's irrelevant. You know, try to put a rope. Try to put a rope through the eye of a needle. It's kind of hard to do. All right. Well, they, they, that's what they say. But yeah, that's what they say. And the camel's got to go on its knees and all. But you know that may or that may or may not be what Christ is saying. You go back and you got to put all the all your different thinking processes in play here. But probably it makes more sense if I'm making a point. A camel through an eye of a needle, sort of a you know that's sort of a like a weird example. But a rope through an eye of a needle. Oh, everybody recognizes that. You know, cause you put thread through it, not a rope. Okay. So probably rope is a better is what Christ said. But in either way, the point is made, right? The point is made. And you can see how they're almost alike, but not quite. And if you don't hear the word right, what may you do? How about there and there? How many times have you missed that one? Or here and here. Okay, we have these all the time. Um, you have another one there. He burns versus he boasts. And again, the, 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 the words are almost... Almost alike. Alright? And we can, we can pretty much determine what the original is. There are some manuscripts that have he boasts, some have he burns. Alright? Um, but we can determine from the context what the original word probably was and we can, we can fix that. Um, you have accidental omissions of a letter or word. What's that? A haplography. You just miss a letter. Alright? How many, how many people spell parallel wrong? All right, that's an easy one to do. I think it's double L and then L. But some people put L double L, or some people put L and L, and they misspell it. But we know what it is. We know from the context what the word is. Oh, somebody doesn't spell it right. We can pick those out. They didn't have a Greek Webster's dictionary in those days. You understand? So you have some of these things crop in. So some manuscripts of John one thirteen read um, the, the idea there is we're born. It's Egen Nathason versus Egen Nathason. You got the double N here instead of one N there. You got a double N there. Alright? Both of them mean we're born. Alright? Just a different spelling. Alright? But we can figure these things out. Dittography, adding words or letters. Notice how it said, not how it really did. It was really cute there. I was waiting for Sammy to point this out. You misspelled your slide. Adding words or letters, but how many people have done that? 
where you accidentally added a second letter, when you're typing, you have the, the. It's easy to do, all right? Um, Mark's 3.16 might be an example of this, where you have a double letter in there, all right? Metathesis, I'm not going to go through all of the examples here, but I'm just showing you the different kinds of things that come in. Metathesis is to invert a word or a letter, to flip it around, like receive, R-E-C-E-I or R-E-C-I-E. Um, and sometimes this makes a difference in numbers. For example, in 1 Chronicles 3-4, depending on how they, if you transpose the letters, you get 120 instead of 20. But we can determine from the context what it should have been. We can figure that out. Um, the same thing in um, 1 Kings. By the way, in Hebrew, numbers were represented by letters. Like, sort of like Roman letters. Alright? So like, for example, if you have LXX instead of LX, you got 70 instead of 60. But we can determine from context probably which one it would have been and go from there. So you have some of these. Um, fusion, the original texts were written as, in what way? Continuous. No... No spaces between them. So sometimes what may happen when you're translating a text is you might split a word out, like here, put a, put a all and then ois, instead of alois, others. Alright? So you come out with a different translation. Alright? It, it's the same letters here, remember? But in the original text there's no, there's no break between the two. So you have to determine as a translator, and this is one of the jobs as a translator, you have to determine, oh, okay, how do I translate this? Do I translate it but the ones, or do I translate it others? Well, you've got, you got to make a decision on that. All right? So you have some of those. Fission is the opposite. You take one word and you split it out as two. All right? So some manuscripts in Romans 7.14, instead of oidemen, we know... It's oida and men. On the one hand, we know. It's a slight difference because they put a space in there. Skipping lines due to the same word endings in the original manuscript. I love this little word, homeoteleton. I love that. It's just a nice word. I put it on tests all the time when I teach this, you know, to see what happens. But um, what it, means, what it means is this. Let's say you're reading a text and you have two lines that have the same ending. You know, the same last three or four words. And what happens is as you're copying it, you know, you're sitting there copying it and, and you might accidentally skip a line because the endings are the same. Because the way your brain works. And we have examples of this where a line is omitted because the ending is virtually identical. All right? So, for example, in some manuscripts of 1 John 2.23, um, we're missing, he who confesses the Son has the Father also, since the phrase, ton patera eke, has the Father, appears both before and after. When you look at the Greek text, it, it, the lines end the same, so sometimes they miss that one. Cause the, and again, what are you doing in the early church? You're copying this fast because, you know, you, you, you want to have a copy of this, and by the way, have you ever done that where you're copying down recipes or something and you skip a whole ingredient because it looks the same and the stuff turns out really gross? Um, it happens, all right? But again, what can we do with these? What are we, what are we able to do? We, we can intellectualize. You can see what they are. You know what they are. 
You say, oh, wait a minute. You know, this manuscript here, the guy who copied it was nearsighted and he forgot a line. Okay. So we know what the original is, right? We can determine the original because we understand the error that was made. This is the other one. Similar beginning. You got similar ending? Similar beginning. We have manuscripts where um, in Luke 10, 41 to 42, you are worried about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. Sometimes they're missing that that line because both of the lines, as you, look, as you read down the manuscript, begin with the merimnus. All right? And it's followed by Maria. Mariu. And, and it looks the same, similar, and they just accidentally skip a piece of the line. All right? And sometimes you have repetitions where you have things repeated twice because you're, you're, you know, you're reading along a manuscript and you see the same line and you copy it down twice. All right? Again, all of these things here, when you look at all of these things, what are you finding out? What, what's going through your head now? As you look? It's overwhelming, all right. Huh? But what can you do? You can, you can detect them. You can look at the text. You can look at the manuscripts. You have several manuscripts. You have this pile here where it's obvious they skipped the line. Okay, well, we can figure that out. We know that they skipped the line. We have the line over here. It's not over here. So probably we have that original line. Or we have... You know, this set of manuscripts spelled the word one way, this another way, but the context would suggest that it's spelled this other way, so we can determine that. All of these things we can pick out. All these things we can work through, and all these things we can come down, when we start boiling this stuff down, these 200,000 differences come down to a very few that you even need to worry about. All right? Because we have, the, the textual evidence is so overwhelming, we can determine the original text. We can determine what it originally said. All right. Is there a way to develop a family tree mm -hmm. then where we know that the earlier ones you can they have those. find which is the correct one? Yes. Yes, we have those. And we'll talk about those. Those are textual families. And how did the textual families go? Well, you know, I'm I'm by family. Well, yeah. <laughs> I like that. By family. Yeah, textual family, by family. But you know, you, Paul wrote a letter of Galatians and where did it wind up? Where did the original letter of Galatia go? Galatia. Galatia. All right, Galatia. And that's a region. Okay? But now I'm a Christian visiting from down in uh, Alexandria, so what do I do? I copy Galatians. I take that back down to Alexandria. And then I lose contact with everybody up in Galatia. So now I have a copy of Galatians in Alexandria. One up in, in Alexandria is in Egypt. And the other one's up in Asia Minor. And then they start copying my copy of Galatians. If I accidentally miss the word, what happens? Everybody, every copy gets it. So I can determine, oh, I have a textual family down there. I have a textual family up there. And when I look at the differences, I see, oh, somebody forgot a word. We, we can determine what the original word is. It doesn't change the deity of Christ. We're not changing the blood atonement. You know, we just, somebody missed the word. We can put that back in. We can determine what the original Galatians was. That's what you do. That's all you do. As a textual critic. And when you work on this and you do this long enough, you find that there's only a few things where there's any real doubt or question as to what the original was. Everything else is, is, is determined. All right? Sometimes a textual variation is you write a passage from memory. 
We all do that. Now, now, now the scribes are not allowed to do that, right? They weren't allowed to do that. But what if uh, you were in a hurry and you were writing something down really quick and you write something down from memory and you accidentally get it wrong? All right? We can determine those. Um, sometimes errors of judgment. You know, the writing, you know, the candle's just not bright enough for me to see the, the letters on the page and I might accidentally get a wrong letter or there's some dirt on the page. And I might mistake one letter like sigma for an omicron. All right. Um, sometimes there are malformed. Again, everybody back knows that they had doctors too that couldn't write well. So it's kind of hard. Okay, now what is that letter? I mean, that did he mean a lambda or a delta? What is that? And sometimes you make a mistake because you can't quite tell the other person's writing. Again, we can pick these things out. The point is, and, and I keep I know I'm beating a horse to death here. But when you start looking at all of this stuff and you get rid of these obvious errors, you're left with an extremely pure text. All right, extremely so. Sometimes they're intentional alterations. All these other ones were unintentional. Nobody decided to do them. Sometimes they're intentional ones. For example, uh, spelling changes over time, right? Spelling of a word changes over time. So they may have changed the spelling of the word because it's now spelled differently 600 years after the original than it was in the time it was actually spelled. Grammar. A lot of this is in the Old Testament. Grammar, spelling, um, verb forms. If, you're, if you know anything about Greek, there are verb forms coming out your ears. And they change over time, just like any Romance language. You know, if anybody take a Spanish or French or something like that, you have the different endings, whether it's first person plural or third person singular and all that stuff. That's the same thing you have in Greek. And sometimes those change over centuries. So they make a change to update the grammar. Or the syntax, the word order. Alright? But none of this here is changing the meaning of the original text. You understand that? It's not changing the meaning of the original text. Alright? And sometimes you have liturgical changes where they'll, they'll add something from the liturgy in there. We can pick those out. Matthew 6.13 is an example of that. Matthew 6.13 is the Lord's Prayer. And I think it's, um, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I think that's what the 6.13 is. And that's really not there. That's not in any original Greek manuscript, but it is in the Hebrew, or in the Luke, I think it's in the Luke uh, version of that. And somebody added it back in. It's the Lord's Prayer. It's the same thing. But it's not in an original text. We can determine that. Sometimes there's a desire to harmonize a gospel with another. Now, you're not supposed to do this, but sometimes they did. This is the Lord's Prayer harmonization here in Matthew 6, 9-13, where we can actually find that someone tried to harmonize the Lord's Prayer in Matthew with the Lord's Prayer in Luke. Alright? And they added, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. When really it's not in Matthew, it's in, it's in one but not the other. I think it's in Luke and not in Matthew. It's not there. Does it change the theology of what he said? No. But I don't think it should be there. Alright, in Matthew. Alright? It doesn't change the theology. It doesn't change the Lord's Prayer because it's the same prayer, right? But in Matthew's copy, he did not have that ending words. Okay. It's in Matthew, but not Luke. Okay, it's the other way around. I'm sorry. All right. 
There's an attempt, um, Acts 9, 5 through 6, with Acts 26, 14 through 15. This is, uh, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. It's talking about Paul there. And what they're trying to do is harmonize the two statements that Paul made about his Damascus Road experience. But in the original lang- uh, manuscripts we have of Acts, most manuscripts do not have verses nine, uh, 9, verses 5 through 6 in them. Some do, some don't. The ones that came later in history do. So what probably happened? They added them because it, it made the, the, the two passages sound the same. Although the original didn't have them, the other copies did. But does it change what Paul said? He said the same thing, right? So we can pick those out. All right. Sometimes there's an attempt to correct a supposed error in a manuscript. Uh, John 19.14 um, or Mark 8.31, after three days is changed to on the third day. You know, and they say, um, you know, somebody decided, well, it makes more sense to say on the third day than after three days. But in Hebrew, that means the same thing. All right? Both statements mean the same thing. Well, Mark was the uh, original, well, the earliest. He was the earliest of the gospel authors, we think. Right. But that doesn't mean that Matthew and Luke copied from Mark. Somebody thought it sounded better, it made more sense, more logical sense, to say on the third day instead of after three days. Oh, just translation. Yeah, the, the one who's copying the manuscript made that, diff- that change. They're not supposed to, but they did to make it sound better, but it doesn't change what is being said. Does that make any sense? Yes. All right. Um, and sometimes there are some doctrinal changes. We're going to talk about these more. The first John 5, 7 through 8 and Mark's long ending. We're going to talk about both of those. Don't worry about it. We'll get there. Those are fun ones to talk about. All right? Um, but the, problem, the issue is in all of these differences that we're, we're talking about here, all of them, using the principles of textual criticism, we can determine the original text. We can do that. All right? To a very high, high degree of probability, we can do it. So when you look at the 200,000 differences, when you look at all of them, variations appear in only 10,000 places in the New Testament of the 200,000. So you whittle them down. Because remember, there are some manuscripts where if 3,000 of them are wrong, it counts as one. All right? Or if 20 of them are wrong, it counts as one. Or as if, if 20 of them have the same mistake, it counts as 20 instead of one. That's what I'm trying to get at. They've counted them up. Somebody's counted those. Now, it could be 199,986, or I rounded it here, you know, because it's about 200,000. And um, when you look at all of the changes, uh, when you look at all this, there's only about 10,000 spots in the New Testament where you have a word order flipped or a letter flipped or something like that. That's boiled down. And then when you look at those, only one-sixtieth of those are beyond anything trivial. In other words, oh, they misspelled a word, they trans... Okay, so you got one-sixtieth of those. So you got about 166 places in the New Testament where there's any real question about what was the original. And even those, you can't whittle those down to, again, no, no doctrines affected, no... Theology. We're talking about camel. Is it, is it camel? One of these here. Is it camel or is it a rope? 
Well, both of them mean sort of the same thing. Christ is making a point. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Alright, if you want to use camel, that's fine. If you want to use rope, that's fine too. Both of them illustrate the same point that Christ is trying to make. Try to get a rope through an eye of a needle. It's kind of hard to do. It's hard for me to get a thread through the eye of a needle. Um, no major or minor doctrine is affected. No doctrine, no... I mean, I'm talking about doctrine all the way down to the most trivial thing. There's no doctrinal issue ever affected by any of these. They're not. You're not going to get rid of the blood atonement, the deity of Christ, none of the, none of the doctrines that we hold near and dear. None of them are even affected by this. All right? And when you look at it, second, when you look at it, all the major textual critics, all of them, say that the text we have is 99% and above pure. In other words, it's 99% of what the original text was. Yeah? See, I can do that. Dan can't. <laughs> uh, the only, the only um, uh, one that I'm stuck on is that after three days versus on the third. Because to me, after Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I'm talking Thursday. But on the third day, I'm talking Wednesday. I only, so to me, there is... It, it, it's the way... What it is, it's the way that the Hebrews... All right. Let me, let me read this, okay? Uh, Mark 8, 31. By the way, next week I'll have my LASIK done, so hopefully I can read better. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Alright? Now you say, after three days. Okay, now, let's, let's think about this. If Christ was, what, what day was Christ crucified on? Okay, so after three days, so after Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it would be Monday, right? In our, in our thinking, it's Monday. Okay? On the third day would be what? Well, it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday on the third day. Now, how would the, how would the Hebrews have understood that? Well, their phrase, three days and three nights, we think, when I think of three days and three nights, what do you think of? How many? No, three days and... 72 hours. We think, oh, 72 hours. That's our thinking. That's not the way the Hebrews thought of it. That's not the way the Jews thought of it. If you said three days and three nights, it's any part of three days and three nights. It could be a minimum of 26 hours. Right? Day one, the whole day, and day two. So, one, two, three days. That's their euphemism. It's, it's an expression that they use. So when Christ said he was going to be in the belly of the heart of the earth three days and three nights, he did not mean literally 72 hours, because that's not the way it worked out. What it meant is any part of three days and three nights. See? So somebody tried to make it sound a little better when they're saying, oh, he said three days and three nights. Well, it wasn't 72 hours. It was really part of the day Friday, all day Saturday, and part of the day Sunday. So we'll put on the third day instead of after three days to harmonize it. They both mean the same thing. It's just depending on what culture are you from. If you're from the Hebrew culture, three days and three nights mean any part of three days and three nights. If you're from a Roman culture or an American culture, you think, oh, it's 72 hours. Alright? Do you understand what's going on here? It's the way the expressions are. So that's, that's that one. Okay? 
Now, so, so, so what we're talking about here is when we look at all of these differences, when we pile all of our manuscripts of the New Testament on tables, and we look at all of them, and we whittle them down, there's 166 spots in all of these 5,500 or 6,000 manuscripts where there's really any non-trivial question as to what the original was. All right? None of that affects your theology, none of it affects your doctrine, none of it affects anything important. But there's just 166 parts where there's a question. All right? That you have to really say, well, it could be this or it could be that. All right? So that's, that's the point I'm trying to make here. All right? And that's why, for example, some, like the, when you look at a New King James Version or an NIV Version, you might see a, a difference between the two versions. Because you're hitting one of those 166 differences. All right? Now, when you look at textual criticism, here's what, I, here's, here's what I'm going to do, hopefully, in the next 20 minutes, is give you um, the methodology you go about in determining, okay, if I have two manuscripts that say different things, which one of them am I going to select as being closest to what the original was? Okay, that's, that's the question we're going to answer now. How can I determine what is probably closest to the original? Now, I'm going to go through these fairly quickly, but I think you'll see logically what's going on here. All right? First of all, there's a, the first guys that really systematize this were guys called Westcott and Hort. Now, if you're a KJ, the only person, these are sons of the devil. All right? Because they're the ones that really started the whole textual criticism kind of thing. These are sons of demons here, but let's, let's not go there right now. All right? Um, what they basically did, and this is their real contribution, when, they look, when you look at all the 5,500 manuscripts, you can basically separate them into four major piles. These are the families. You've got the, what it calls here, the Western textual family. In other words, all these manuscripts sort of are the same. They read the same. They have the same different variations. Then you have a pile that's the Syrian pile, which is over near Palestine. You have the Alexandrian, which is down in Egypt. And then they have what they call the neutral text or whatever that they call Vaticanus, which is really their number one text. They really like that one more than anything else. All right. They basically said there are several families. All right. And, and there are. When you, when you pile them all together, they, they basically fall into these four major piles. They're just major piles. Okay. So what they did is they said, well, we're going to forget about the Syrian. I'm just saying what they did. I'm not saying this right or wrong. I'm saying how they did it. They said, well, forget about the Syrian text type. Now, the Syrian area, that's the Byzantine, that's the manuscript behind the KJV. So they basically said, okay, we're going to ignore the textual tradition behind the KJV because, and they said this, it's a conflate text. What's conflate mean? It's expanded. Okay. So, for example, in, and, and you have this. When you look at some of the texts, you have the Lord Jesus Christ instead of maybe just Jesus Christ. All right. Now, generally, generally, what's going to happen as a text is copied over time? Generally. It's going to expand a little bit, right? Not a lot. It's going to expand a little bit. Because what is the tendency for you to do? To clarify rather than take out. All right. Generally, that's the case. All right. Now, again, we're not talking about major. Remember, we're not talking about major differences here. 
We're talking about, you know, maybe the Lord Jesus Christ instead of just Jesus Christ. Or maybe say the Lord, and somebody puts on what we'll say, the Lord Jesus Christ. It means the same. We all know what it means. Alright? So you have a conflation. Also, it's not quoted by any church father. This is interesting. When we look at all of the early church father quotes, and they quoted the New Testament a lot, they quoted basically from the Alexandrian family of texts. Not from these, the, the, the later texts. By the way, the Byzantine texts come much later. So when you look at, for example, Irenaeus and Polycarp and all these guys from the 2nd and 3rd centuries, they quoted from the Alexandrian manuscript family, not the Syrian family. So their thought was, well, obviously that's a derivation of an earlier set, so we're not going to use that. We're going to use the earlier manuscript as our basis, which is Vaticanus is what they use. All right? So basically, the bottom line here is what they did is they basically said, look, we're going to pick Vaticanus as being our text, and that is our standard text. And basically, the King James is a translation of the Vaticanus. Not the King James, the um, English Revised, or the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, the, the NIV, which is behind it. They produced what they called a critical text, the Westcott and Hort text, and that became the basis for a lot of the modern translations, other than the KJV. Following what I'm saying so far? Does it make sense? When did that come about? Because, I mean, when did what come about? The, even the translation, the one before NIV. The one that 1880s. Okay. Somewhere around the 18, late 1800s when these guys were, were doing this. All right? However, one of the problems with their... Now, although they started this whole concept of textual families and understanding that, one of the problems is they say, well, the readings... The readings that I want to use, the best readings come from the best manuscripts, and the best manuscripts are the ones that have the best readings. Follow that? Yeah, circular reasoning, right? So basically, the bottom line, one of the flaws in their methodology is they basically said, I'm going to use Vaticanus, and that's, my, that's the best manuscript, and they just arbitrarily picked that almost. And then anything else will just totally discount. Basically, is what they did. All right. Now, what's the problem with that? You might miss some other stuff that's good, right? You might. How do you know the Vaticanus is the best? I just picked that one. All right. It's really like I picked a book called "God Only Wrote One Bible." It's an interesting book, and the guy basically says, you know, the KJV is God's original true word to English people. Everything else is demonic, and then he goes through and shows how all the other versions differ from the KJV and how they're demonic because they, dis they disagree with the KJV. But what is his starting point? The KJV is the correct text and everything else is bad. Well, how do you know the KJV is the right text? Well, that's the inspired word of God. Well, how do you know that? Alright, that's the, that's the same reasoning here. So although they started this whole concept of this textual criticism, there were some flaws in their thinking. There were some flaws in their thinking, okay? So you don't want to go there. Probably the, the, the two that really systematized really this whole concept of textual criticism were Kurt and Barbara Allen, A-L-A-N-D, all right? And uh, they basically had these following rules that they used. And by a rule is just a general, generally this is what we apply, not in every situation, but generally this is what we think. Only one reading. What's a reading? Just a variation. That's all it is. Only one reading can be original 
however many variants you have. If I have a hundred variants of, a, of something, only one of them can be correct, right? That's just logic, right? Now, there's not a hundred differences. There's only about two or three. But only one of them can be the original, all right? Only the readings which best satisfies the requirements of internal and external criteria can be original. What do we mean by external criteria? Um, where was the manuscript from? The age of the manuscript. All that. Internally, does that word make sense in the context? What makes better sense? Rope through the eye of a needle or camel through the eye of a needle? What makes better sense internally? Externally, how old is the manuscript? If it's a very old one, we would tend to give it more credence than one that came from the 15th century, right? Because generally, one that came from the 15th century is a copy of a copy of a copy going back. All right? So what they say is that when you start looking at a text, okay, you begin with the manuscript tradition. What's the manuscript tradition? The age of the manuscript, where it was from. All right? You start there, and then you work to the internal. That, this is how they did it. I'm just telling you what they did. Okay? Internal criteria, the context, all right, can never be the sole basis for a critical decision. In other words, what you want to do, why, why is this important here? Why do you think that's important? What's your job as a textual critic? What's your job? You got one job. Here, here's what they're yeah. Here's what they're saying here. What they're saying is, don't let your theology drive your your criticism. Let the evidence drive it. It's like the CSI, right? We go where the evidence leads us. All right. So what they're saying is, don't say, well, theologically, I like this reading better than the other one, even though evidence would suggest that it's the wrong one. Don't let it trumpet. See what I'm trying to get at here? All right? Because your job is to determine the original text, not to put your theology into the text. Get what, it's, what we're saying there? Okay? Yeah. All right? The primary authority for a critical textual decision, in other words, I have to make a decision, lies with the Greek manuscript tradition with the version and father serving no more the supplement and corroborative function, blah, 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 blah. What it's saying here is that I, I really look at the textual tradition of this manuscript. Where is it from? Its age, its usage. That gives me more credence, depending on other factors, than if I have a manuscript from a very late period of time. See what, I'm, see what they're saying there? You look at the manuscript evidence, the manuscript tradition. All right? I'm whittling these down. Manuscripts should be weighed and not counted. What, what it means there is, um, oh, I'm trying to decode all of this for you. This, this is from their, their, um, their, it's actually from the, the Greek text that I have of theirs. Um, the idea of weighing a manuscript means that I don't just count up the, you know, if I say, I have 5,500 manuscripts and 5,000 of them say this and 500 of them say that, I'm going to go with the 5,000. That's called the majority text view. 
where I just count up the number of manuscripts with a particular difference and I, they, it's, they take a vote. What's the problem with that? It could be errant. Yeah, if somebody, if, if a textual family has 4,000 manuscripts and somebody misspelled a word, it gets 4,000 votes, even though it should be something else. That's what they're really trying to say there. You gotta weigh the manuscript. There are certain manuscripts that are, that are, that are seen as better than others because of the age, because of the time they were written, because of their preservation. And so what they do is you weigh a manuscript. You give it a different weight. That's all it's saying there, a different weight. You understand what's going on here? You know, I'm not trying to turn you into textual critics. I'm trying to help you understand the process. This is as deep as we're going to get into this, believe me. All right. Um, I'm going to dig through all of these things here. The principle that the original reading may be found in any single manuscript or version when it stands alone or nearly alone is only a theoretical possibility. If I only have one manuscript that says that and everything else doesn't, probably I don't have that one manuscript should not trump everything else. That's all it's doing. It's taking that into consideration. Um, I've got to quickly get through these. Um, I, I got to get to the to the end there because that's where I want to be. Um, variations must never be treated in isolation, but considered in the in the context of a tradition. Um, the the idea there is that if I have a a variation in a text, I can't take that and isolate it from the textual tradition, from the church fathers, from the teachings of the church. I can't do that. I've got to take it into consideration with everything else. I can't just pick it out and just say, I'm going to take this and trump everything else. That's all they're saying there. They've got 12 of these things. Um, there is a general truth, general truth, that the more difficult reading is the most probable. Why is that? What is, what is the tendency to do when you're copying something? Simplify it, clarify it. So generally, and this is a general truth, generally the more difficult the reading, generally that's probably the more accurate. So taking our camel example, if you use this principle, generally the more difficult reading would be the correct. So it would be camel instead of rope. However, that you can't just use that as a trump card necessarily. You've got to take it into consideration. All right? And the reason is because generally people are going to try to make things easier. Alright? And then um, there's another maxim they use that generally the shorter reading is better than the longer one, right? If I have two texts and one of them has the Lord Jesus Christ, another one just has Jesus Christ in it, generally, what should probably be the original? Just Jesus Christ. Because the, 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 the tendency is to conflate it. Alright? Generally, this is not, and again, these are all general things. These are not absolutes. All right? And then what they're saying is one of the best ways is you just got to be familiar with all of the texts. All right? You can't apply mechanistic, solid, hard and fast rules. You have to take all kinds of things into consideration. All right? When you're doing this. And when you do, when you, basically when you apply all of these rules, you get to a very good original. Now, Let's look at an eclectic view. This is really where I wanted to get at here. Hopefully you're not bored out of your skull so far. All right. Basically what you want to say is there's different principles that I'm going to apply to determine which one of these variations is the correct one. 
One of the principles is the reading which best explains the rise of all others is the preferred one. If I have one variation that I can see that, well, this one, this one, and this one can all be derived from this one here, what one is probably the best one? The one I'm pointing at, right? Because I can see, oh, well, this family, they, they added this letter to, to make it sound better. But I, if, I can, if they all point back to one original, that's probably the one that's, that's there. It's probably the one that I should use. That's what that's saying. Generally, I take the shorter reading over the longer one. Generally. Why? Because the tendency is to conflate over time. All right? Generally, the more difficult reading is better than the easier reading. Why? Because you're going to try to simplify things. That's the whole on the third day as opposed to after three days. All right? That's that whole issue, generally. Another principle here is of intrinsic probability. What would the author probably have written? If I'm writing this down, what, what, what do I think Paul would have normally written? I, I can't use it as a trump card, but if I have to choose between two different things, and I know how Paul writes, generally what would he have said? Okay, I can use that. Um, and this is the idea here, the reading that best fits the author's characteristics and tendencies is to be preferred. But again, this is subjective. You've got to be careful here. But again, we're, we're talking about picking two slightly different readings or two tight, slightly different variations. So you can bring in this concept of how would, how would John have written this? If I know how John writes, I know the words, the vocabulary, what would he have done? All right. the Hebrews question came up. Yeah. The book of Hebrews. Mm-hmm. Total consideration. Here's the idea. When I look at all the manuscripts, generally what manuscripts are better to use? The older ones, right? Because they're generally the closest to the original authors. All right? Um, and if I, have the older, if I have a manuscript from the 15th century, how many manuscripts do I have between it and the original? Probably a lot more than I have from something from the 4th century, right? Probably a lot more, alright? It shouldn't be the most important consideration, but it is a consideration. That's why, for example, the papyri are very important. Why is that? Because they're very old. Alright? So they're very important to help us understand the original. Generally, the reading with the most manuscript evidence is to be preferred. However, you don't take a vote. Alright? So, for example, if I have a variation and it's in three of the four families, what can I assume? It's, is it correct or not? It's probably more correct, right? Or let's say I have a reading that I have something from this end of the empire and up there and over there. Probably that's the original, right? Because it's a broader area. That's all this is saying in here. And also I can look at quotations of early church fathers, can I not? All right? Or I can look at early councils of churches, can I not? I'll give you a little tidbit. I'll, I'll throw out a, a steak or a raw bone to the pack of dogs here. First John 5, 7, there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, the Holy Spirit, these three are one. You know that that's not in any original manuscript. It doesn't exist in any of them except very late ones from the 14th and 15th centuries. And it was never quoted by an early church father when they were debating the deity of Christ. So what are the chances of it being part of the, God, of the book of 1 John? Slim. All right. But now you say that's okay. You have the only person. They've just popped a vein. 
because you're denying the deity of Christ. All right? Generally, the reading with the greatest continuity is to be preferred. What do we mean by that? If I have a reading that exists over long periods of time and is the same in many different time periods, generally that would be the right one. Now again, we're looking at these 166 variations that we have to worry about. Alright? Generally, the manuscript of the best context is to be preferred. Alright? Um, for example, you have Codex D, that's Bizet, um, Luke 22 through 24 very significantly with every other manuscript that we have of Luke. So what would you say about Luke 22 through 24 in Codex Bizet? Probably not the best, all right? Because every other manuscript contradicts it. It stands alone. So you got to worry. You got to think that. Generally, the the reading that appears to be more reasonable is to be preferred. For example, um, and we have these codexes here. Give the distance from Emmaus to Jerusalem is 160 furlongs instead of 60. What happened? Yeah, somebody added an extra letter or something like that and it got the number wrong. But we know, hey, wait a minute, the distance from Emmaus to Jerusalem is 60, so we can pick that out, we can fix that, we can know what it is. All right. Generally speaking, the readings from the most respected manuscripts are to be preferred. There are certain manuscripts that are respected very highly because of their weight, their antiquity, their, their, their purity, and those are considered a little better than thousands of other manuscripts that come at a very late point. I got through it. I can't believe it. All right. Here, here's the point. Let me let me end it with this, just so you, just so we, we you know, you, you're not freaking out here. First John five seven. Yeah. Here's the point, folks. You know, I I just did a jet tour, twenty thousand feet over textual criticism. All right. You're not. You don't need to remember all of this stuff. All right. Thankfully, there's no test on this. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show you that when, when we compare the Greek manuscript evidence, when we look at all the variations, when we do our analysis, when, when we boil it down, we have the capability to get within fractions of a percentage to the original text. What does that mean? That means when you pick up a Bible, whether it's the KJV or the New King James, or the English Standard Version, you've got a text that is extremely close to the original. So close, in fact, that there's no, none of your theology is going to be affected, no doctrine of the church is going to be affected, nothing of any significance eternally is going to be affected. In fact, you have more issues going from the Greek to the English than you do from the Greek. We're talking here about the Greek text. All right? What I'm trying to say there is that the Greek text is closer to the original. If you want to really want to learn the Bible, go learn Greek. Go learn Hebrew. That's where you need to go. There are more issues that arise when we do a translation than is when we try to determine what the original is. You understand what I'm trying to say there? You got more issues when you try to translate a word than you do determining what the original word is. All right. So that's where a lot of our discussion is going to arise. So. I'm sorry if I went through this fast. I'm sorry if your eyes are glazed over, but hopefully it's been interesting. And this is all we're going to talk about. Now we're going to do, I'm going to do a few examples to show you how this has worked out, just so you see how it's worked out in some problem passages. But other than that, 
this is textual criticism 101. Any questions or comments or anything? Okay. Uh, is, is there a possibility that the canon could be continuous ongoing process to this day? Have more, have more books added? Yeah. The answer is no. Uh, that, that have already been written no. from time ago? No. Like, for instance, uh, could they actually, uh, with critique, have uh, the book of Thomas no. with the showing the parts that are errant? No. No, I think we have, when we talk about canonization, we have the canon that God wants us to have. God doesn't play games with us. He wants, God wants us to know his truth worse than we want to know it. And God has made sure that we have the, the books that we should have. Alright? And when you compare all of these other books, you find that there are very good reasons they're not in the canon. So I don't think there's any hidden book out there somewhere where we've got a missing letter of Paul, number 28, that we need to have and somebody digs it up and finds it. And we modify all of our Bibles for it. I don't believe that's, that operates that way. Alright, God doesn't operate that way. So, alright, well let's close in prayer. Um, thank you, Teresa, for doing the handouts really late. We owe you one. Alright. Um, I'll get them to you earlier next time. I'm sorry. Um, let's close in prayer. Father, thanks so much for this time. And pray that we would understand and even just ponder these things and realize that what you've given us and what you have what we have in front of us is a text that's so close to the original as to really be the original. Thank you for your word, and I pray that we would read it, love it, and study it, and obey it. In Christ's name, amen.